0: Alright, we we gotta be we gotta be we're gonna be crisp. The the, the theme of this show is crisp. Jeff Price, um, long I'm time my my water <gasps> The <laughs> opposite of crisp. <laughs> Saggy.
1: I'm like cookie crisp, but I've only I've been I've been in milk too long. Okay.
0: Jeff Price, longtime friend, colleague, business partner, etc. Give give the quick, the, and, and to try to do this fast, give the quick, I'm Jeff Price, here's what I believe in, here's what I've done, here's what I'm doing now.
1: Sure.
0: Quick. Crisp.
1: I'm Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, well, hey, I'm Jeff Price. I ran a record label called Spin Art Records for 17 and a half years put out about 230 bands, most of which you never heard of. Some of the highlights include Pixies, Echo and the Bunnymen, Apples and Stereo. In 2005, as my label went out of business, I started a company called TuneCore, which became the largest music distribution company in the world. And I made two significant changes to the whole music business model. The first is democratize the industry. Let everybody in that recorded music have access to distribute it, put it on the shelves of digital music stores like iTunes. And then I commoditized distribution. People just paid a simple flat fee to have access to distribution. And when the music sold, they got 100% of the revenue. By the time I left in 2012, its clients had earned over $800 million from the sale of the recordings. And they got every single penny and fraction thereof. Remember, this was the everybody else, the ones that weren't you know, signed. After I left TuneCore, and TuneCore got bought by I Believe Digital out of Europe, uh, I started a company called Audium. And Audium worked for songwriters and music publishers to ensure that their lyrics and melodies, when they got recorded, that those lyrics and melodies were properly licensed and getting paid, primarily from streams at places like Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube. And lo and behold, we discovered they weren't. And uh, over the next couple of years, we began to recover hundreds of millions of dollars. Audium got bought by a Canadian organization called SoCan. I stayed there for the next couple of years, and then I left about a year ago. And when I left, I started this company called Word Collections, And what Word Collections does is it works for sort of the brethren to a songwriter. It works for authors, in particular comedians. Uh, When Richard Pryor recorded his album for Warner Brothers, Richard Pryor wrote the words, Warner Brothers owns the recording. Warner Brothers is getting paid for those recordings when they stream on Spotify or get broadcast on, let's say, Sirius XM. But as Richard Pryor wrote the words and he's the author, he also is entitled to a license and a payment. And lo and behold, I discovered for all comedians globally, they just weren't getting licensed and paid. And there's well over $700 million earned in the past eight years that had never been paid to anybody from the Robin Williams estate to the Richard Pryor estate to Margaret Cho, Andrew Dice. I mean, you go through the list, you name the comedian, they've been fucked. And so that's the that's the wrong I'm trying to write now.
0: Yeah, and, and and you know, as a as a friend and, and someone who's watched you do this and been by your side by a lot of it, um, it's it's you're a very purpose not product type person and, and as you say, you, you try you try to write wrongs and it tends to be the writing of wrongs of um, you know, artists not getting what's their due. What's interesting to me as someone that's that's been in the record industry forever and as a copyright attorney. There's apparently a lot of misinformation about spoken word as it relates to mechanicals. I mean, the conventional wisdom has always been that, for whatever reason, spoken word does not generate mechanicals and or public performance royalties, right? Because you'd hear the threats from radio stations. Like, if you, radio, if, if you Congress, or whoever, make us pay a, a public performance in the sound recording, which the United States does not, we will just go all to spoken word. Similarly, there are lots of labels, as you've identified, who put out lots of comedy albums, et cetera, and apparently they've not paid mechanicals. Can you elucidate a little bit of that?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know how inside baseball we want to go on this, but um, there is a misnomer that somehow, because you say the word hello, as opposed to sing the word hello, there's some difference in copyright, and there's just simply not. Uh, you know, when you write a poem or a book or a comedic routine, that's yours. And the minute you write that down or you record it, you get a copyright. It doesn't matter if you're singing it or speaking it. It's it's a copyright. And with that copyright. Well, I mean,
0: and for listeners, sorry to interrupt, for listeners, you, copyright is created when, when an original work of authorship is fixed in tangible form. And that's, that's section, I think, 106 of the copyright code for the nerds out there, right? And so what that means is, is so you can take apart each word in that sentence, and, and it's, it's wise to do so. Originality, the standard for originality is that it can't be substantially similar to another track, right? It doesn't mean that, it, you know. And then work, and I think this is where things might be a little bit um, controversial, um defining a work isn't as easy as as it might be right a work has to it can't be de minimis in nature in other words it can't just be a single note um but to your point you know copyright can be for a photograph it can be for an architectural rendering it can be for pantomime it can be for songs um so where where is the confusion around spoken word if i do a comedic r- routine that's an original work it's not infringing upon anyone else's and i record that obviously the person who made the recording would have the copyright for the sound recording and you are saying that the the the, the author in copyright parlance the com- comedian he she or they would would have essentially the copyright to what we call in the music business the composition right the the Melody and lyric. There's no melody or ly- there's no melody here, but there is a lyric. So I'm just curious, like your interpretation.
1: Yeah, when George Carlin wrote, came up with the. So George Carlin is a is a very well known comedian for some of us of our age, with gray hair. And um, for the, for the youngers maybe you saw him in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Anyway, uh, George Carlin wrote a routine in like 1972, 73 called Seven Dirty Words to Ken Sand Television. And he is the author of those words. He literally wrote them down. And then he got hired by Warner Brothers Records to record his own words. That's the same thing as Kurt Cobain writing the song Smells Like Teen Spirit getting hired by Geffen Records to record the song that he wrote, right? There's two different copyrights one for the recording and a second, separate one for, with Kurt Cobain, the lyric and melody. But what happens when you're not? Kurt Cobain, and you're just talking like George Carlin. Well, you still have words, and those words are yours. They're what we call intellectual property. And this is where it gets weird, because intellectual property is this weird esoteric thing. You can't taste it. You can't touch it. You can't smell it. It doesn't really exist until it either gets written down or recorded. But when it's tangible, the word that you use that's in the law as well, the tangible medium It gets a copyright and we've created rules around the world and here in the United States that say, hey, if you come up with this thing that has a copyright, other people can't use it. Other entities can't use it. They can't just take these scripts of Star Wars and just make money off it. They have to go to you, the entity that controls that and get permission, get a license. So if you want to use a recording. Of George Carlin's words, it doesn't matter if George Carlin's saying them or you, George, are saying them. You're going to have to get permission from George because those are his words. Just like with Kurt Cobain, that's his. And, song. and yet,
0: you can't copyright a recipe.
1: Yes, correct. You can't copyright a recipe. That that is correct.
0: Even if I come up with an original recipe and I write it down, I can I can have a copyright to the book of the collection of recipes but not the recipe itself. And so this is why I say, and, and to your point, intellectual property is one of those, those gray areas, and, and certainly intellectual property as it relates to copyright is, is tricky. But, but let, let's, let's not get too, I mean, let, let's take it as, as the letter of the law, which is what you're saying. I come up with an original work. It happens to be a comedic routine. It could be a monologue. It could be, you know, the, the great monologuist um, who is the guy, Spalding Gray. Right? Like, I am sure that those works are copyrighted, you know, Monster in a Box, all of those things. I can't, I, George Howard, can't go and just do Monster in a Box and then release it. I owe Spalding Gray's estate something or I'm infringing, a license, I need a license or I'm infringing upon his work, correct?
1: Correct, just like you can't take a John Irving novel or, or anyone just sit there and read the book. Uh, and stick it up in YouTube if you were to do that you literally are infringing on the copyright in this case maybe it's Random House that controls it but that that is correct you, you just can't take someone else's stuff now recipes you pointed out you can but in this case you cannot and the law literally defines what is this thing that George Carlin's the author of and they they call it either a literary work or a work of the performing arts it's it's categorized as one or the other uh, by the author when they register this work with the Copyright Office. But the point is, it has a copyright. And as such, it needs to be licensed. So if radio's going fine, we're just going to go and play George Carlin 24 7, because, you know, screw music. Still got the same problem, dude. You're still going to have to go and get a goddamn license to the underlying authorship with George Carlin called Public Performance, and you're going to have to pay a royalty.
0: So, why in the world, Jeff? And here's a softball question for you why in the world you know we're in 2021 there been it's been going on for a long ass time why why has it taken someone like you or someone cuz there's no one else doing this right like i mean the 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 almost immediate success of your new entity to be able to sign up these legendary comedians it, 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 you're going to them as i understand it and just being like um do you guys know that right and and why has this taken so long? Why hasn't this happened before?
1: It's a great question. And I don't know if I have the complete answer. Number one, I'm just weird. Uh, let me just, you know, I'm just a, a person with a weird uh, amalgamation of strange data and in inputs. You know, I, between my record label, SpinArt, and then TuneCore, and then Audium, I became very versed in, in copyright. And hey, and no credit to you as well, George, for setting me down this path many, many years ago. I just sort of took to it. So I, I, I read, I know this sounds stupid, but I read that stuff that is less exciting than watching paint dry. I read section 115, 104, when I just read this stuff and then I ask a lot of questions. So there's that. And then there's the um, just my, my interactions and experiences, both by running TuneCore, but also with places like Spotify and Apple Music, where I understand the technology shortcomings and what wasn't happening for music. And it's very easy to say, well, what's coming next? Oh, look, now Spotify's really invested in comedy. Now Sirius XM's really invested in comedy. Huh, I wonder if they're paying the royalties there, because they weren't paying it for music the way they should have been. And you just begin to pick at the scab. You know, you've got to find the thread. So the first thread was was really easy. The first thread was, well, let's start with digital radio in the United States. You know, of all the things to pick, why digital radio? Uh, because in the year 2000 or around 2000, the major record labels went to Congress and said, hey, man, when a radio station plays, I will always love you, as recorded by Whitney Houston for Arista Records and the radio, and all the rest of the world on AM and FM radio, we, Arista Records, get paid. But here in the United States, when AM and FM radio play it, we don't get paid. We want to get paid when AM and FM radio play it here in the United States. And Congress said no. But what we will do is when there is a digital radio, you know, satellite, uh, cable, an LTE network. If it's a digital broadcast as opposed to an AMF and broadcast, then yeah, okay, we'll make you get paid. And so Congress legislated regulations, something uh, created a quasi governmental organization called sound exchange, and they created royalty rates. They built the whole tubing, the pipeline, the infrastructure to deal with the licensing and collection of money for the recording, right? And this company sound exchange that was created, um, collects the money in many cases when SiriusXM plays a recording and it takes this money, it takes a small piece from it as its fee and what's left over, let's say there's a dollar left over, they'll give 50 cents of the dollar to Arista Records. They'll give five cents of the dollar to musicians unions and SAG-AFTRA, a screenwriter of some guilds, and they'll take 45 cents of the dollar and they'll give it to the performer, Whitney Houston. And there was like, well, this is easy. George Carlin is Whitney Houston. In this example, right? And he is a member of Sound Exchange. And so I can just ask him to download his royalty statements from Sound Exchange, and I'll know whether or not the recordings that he wrote the words to were getting broadcast by SiriusXM and Pandora. And lo and behold, there it is. You can see for, there's been over, I think, uh, 30 million broadcasts of his recordings on SiriusXM and Pandora in like the last five or six years. But that's just one piece of the pie. But these are unimpeachable now royalty statements. So I pick up the phone and I call SiriusXM and Pandora and I go, hey man, you know, with Dolly Parton, when they play Oh I Will Always Love You, I know that you're you're paying the money for the recording to Sound Exchange. And I know that Dolly Parton's a member of an organization called Ascap or BMI, and that you did a deal with them, because they work for Dolly Parton to get a license and make a payment for her for her music but George Carlin's not a member of ASCAP or BMI. So where did you get that second license from? And lo and behold, you get that stone cold silence. And then it's like, all right, <laughs> something's going on. And you, you know, I logged in and I read these public filings. So Pandora went public and it was bought by SiriusXM in their own, what's called SEC, security exchange uh, filings, where they talk about the risks of buying stock in Pandora. They literally have a section where they go, hey, Start going up to 2012. They say, Hey, we we just got into comedy and we don't have the licenses to the underlying literary works for comedy. This creates a risk for us. Like, right? so you knew this.
0: Yeah. So that that's a smoking gun there. Right. Like for those who don't know, when you when you when you form a public company and for investor letters, et cetera, you have to state risks. You have to say investors need to know this is a potential risk and we're aware of it. So that, that's probably the, the most aggressive smoking gun that you have. Oh, no,
1: it gets, it gets worse. But you did ask me, why me, why no one else? And I do want to go back to that. But to continue on this thread, that is a huge smoking gun. Uh, what's very fascinating is when Sirius XM acquired Pandora, and this is like 2017 or 18, all of a sudden that language disappeared from the SEC filings. So, you know, now I begin to think about, is there some sort of securities uh, fraud going on, you know, because they didn't provide this risk to their shareholders. I don't have the acumen or the knowledge to answer that. But I do know that what I did next is I contacted SiriusXM and Pandora. And this is a year ago, okay? One year ago on behalf of George Carlin, and now I work for George Carlin Estate, the Robin Williams Estate, the Richard Pryor Estate, um, Margaret Cho, uh, Jim Brewer,
0: The the great Bill Hicks. Do you represent, and we lost a great one the other day, arguably my favorite comedian. Norm. Um, Do you represent Norm? We do not.
1: I'd love to. Um, Anyway, so we represent all this stuff, and I contacted them. I want to be clear about this. I contacted Sirius X. and Pandora. Very friendly. Hey, we represent these literary works exclusively for the world. Uh, You're broadcasting stuff. We can see that you're not licensed how about we enter into a license because you're infringing on copyright now but you know I'm not all about litigating my way to success let's get you a up you're paying for music you should be paying for the spoken word and here's a licensing proposal here's a spreadsheet with all the information here's the sound exchange statements to back it up here's a legal memo just in case you want to screw with me that provides the foundation rich, written by uh, Richard Bush one of the top litigators on the planet when it comes to copyright that represented the Marvin Gaye estate and 8 Mile Style, and m and um, it goes into this void of silence. And now, so we are now a year later. So my point to this is, yes, it's a smoking gun in the SEC filings, but I've got even, I've got a smoking bazooka now. I put them on notice in writing one year ago with a very finite list, all the information, backups, I mean, everything was there. And basically what I've gotten back to date is a big middle finger. Now, if you want to get into what does that mean? Why do I care? Because when you infringe on a copyright, meaning using someone's intellectual property, in this case, the the authorship, the words without a license, it's called infringement. And if you have been smart enough as the owner of those copyrights to register those works with the U.S. Copyright Office, Okay, uh, what you do, you go and you log in. You are now eligible to pursue something called statutory damages.
0: Let, let me pause you there, Jeff. And this is relevant for all of the the music listener, music creators out there too. What Jeff's referring to is that that you 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 are granted copyright with the creation of an, and fixation of original work. However, absent filing registering that work with the copyright office. You are not able to bring suit at all. There are ways you can kind of sneak around that, but um, but you are not able to collect damages, inclusive of what's known as statutory damages. The current statutory damage for copyright infringement is one hundred fifty thousand dollars per infringement, and the reason the courts do that is because um, you know in most legal legal actions, if there are no monetary damages, it can be very hard to bring a claim. With music, with spoken word. The damages go beyond just hey I lost money on this to to reputational damages to just just kind of equity right and wrong. So that's why they put that that hundred fifty thousand there. But it's very important for anybody that's a musician and clearly a comedian out there as well. That's why you have to spend the whatever it is um, to register your copyrights. You you can't bring suit. And one other point I'll shut up your ability to sue for damages does not go backwards. In other words, if you've been infringed on for prior years and then you register and try to sue for, for damages back in time, they'll say, no, 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 you can only collect from the time of registration. So it's very important to register when you create the work.
1: And, and you're the attorney, and I might have this wrong, but I'm of the understanding you can sue even if you haven't registered. But if you sue without registration, you can only pursue... Actual damages.
0: That's right, and, and that's what I mean. There, there are ways to bring the suit, um, and and um, uh, certain circuits will allow for it. But to your point, you're not you're not going to get all that you deserve unless and until you register. So I just try to be very clear about it and say just register the work.
1: Yeah, you should you should register your works.
0: So let's let's pivot a little bit. Let's move a little bit. I'd love for Dan and Carly to chime in as well. Um, but but let's move a little bit All right. So it's it's fascinating to me. I'm a nerd on this, as are you. So, but how do you how do you now you're expert at kind of just taking an idea and creating a company around it? And I think, I mean, this this podcast is entrepreneurship and art. So the, the art here is really protecting the spoken word people, which I think is is amazing. But talk a little bit about okay, I've got this idea, I've got this thing, I think I've got a competitive advantage. How does it now become a company? <laughs>
1: Well, it it sort of ties into the other part of your question as well, which is, you know, why me? Why no one else? Uh, And before I answer that, I just want to bring, I I really wanted to get this out because this is is a fresh wound for me, which is despite these notifications, their own filings and my notification to them a year ago and all the data and the massive follow-up, they basically have done nothing except continue now to use the things they know are unlicensed and they can't claim that they didn't know now. And it's, it just, it gets me so angry because really I have to go now to war with you. Fine. You know what? Sirius XM, Pandora, you want to go to battle. Here we go again. You're using people's stuff. You're worth billions of dollars. Billions. You've sunk a lot into comedy. Is it really too much to ask you just to get the license and make the royalty payment? You're really, you're going to, we're going to go through this fight now, but apparently we are. And it's not just them, by the way. It's also Warner Brothers. It's universal and it's Sony and it's network records, and it's BMG, and it's Comedy Central, and it's Comedy Dynamics, and it's 800-pound grill. It's just everywhere I turn, it's the same thing. So it, it's I'm right now is a particularly raw moment because I haven't even gotten to the mechanics, but the short version is the Warner Music Group owes these royalties that we're discussing when there's streams of these recordings. It's different than with music. With music, the money's coming from either the Spotify or now in the United States from this thing called the Mechanical Licensing Collective. But if it's not music, it's coming from Warner Brothers. And guess what? Warner Brothers, Sony, Universal, they didn't pay. Not only didn't they pay, but they also made representations to Spotify that they controlled rights that they didn't control to get them to make the recordings live so they could make money, but they won't pay the the, the person that they're supposed to pay in in their own contract. I have a, a memo from Warner Brothers sent to me, Today, let me just get this last point out and then I'll stop ranting and get the foam off my face. The Warner Brothers memo I received says, hey, an interactive stream on Spotify does not meet the definition of sale in the recording agreement. So we don't have to pay royalties on a stream on Spotify. Really? Really? Is this the battle you want to have? All right. I'll stop there. Sorry, George.
0: So, so, and I want to, I, it's not fair for me to say, I I want Carly and Dan to chime in and not let them, but I do want to, before I do that, say, (laughs) say that we, we will right here right now, open invitation for any of the parties that Jeff just named to, to join us on this podcast and share their, their side of the story, right? You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't want this just to be a, a polemic, right? Like I'm not disagreeing with you at all. But I think it's only fair to say, anyone from any of these institutions or record companies or whatever, feel free. Come on, let's talk it through.
1: I would love to have the public discourse. I, I would, in, in a heartbeat, because it's not just the clients I represent, it's the whole world, it's everybody. And these are precedent setting conversations. Anyway, I apologize for the rant. It, it gets me so angry because how many times do we have to go through this? I mean, these are multinational, in some cases, market cap north of a trillion dollars. And you can't be bothered with getting the license. Okay. Now you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar. I got it. So now you got to pay the speeding ticket. Really? You're going to, you want to go back. Just like, here we go again. All right. I I apologize for the rant, but uh, yes, you guys
2: questions. Go ahead.
3: Well, I'm curious. You've obviously mentioned some really big estates that you're working with, but is this something that the comedians themselves are even aware of that there is this, I think you mentioned like 700 million that hasn't been paid out. Is this something that they're even aware of is owed to them or are you kind of educating them as you're approaching them that this is a problem that even exists?
1: It's a great question and it's a great point. And the answer is comedians never think I'm going to make my money off of the reproduction rights and public performance rights of my literary works, right? Comedians traditionally generate their revenue from live gigs and production deals with TV shows or film companies. So it doesn't I don't want to make a blanket statement. I'm sure there are some that are exception, but no, to to date, it it hasn't occurred to the comedians or the people that they work with that, oh my God, there's a big pile of money over here we've never been paid. It's it's not not their world. It takes somebody like me that shows up and goes, hey, you know, by the way, can I see your recording contract from 1979 with Casablanca Records or from 1985 with Sony? Seriously. And it's just fascinating for me. I get these contracts. And for me, it's like nerd history. Because it's like you know you see Robin Williams' signature or someone's signature on these things, and I get to read these contracts and they're fascinating, but I'm like, look right here, page you know twelve, it says you get the following royalty. Have you ever been paid that royalty? And they're like, oh, I don't know, go ask the business manager, and the business manager is like, here's what we got. I'm like, no, you've never been paid this royalty, and they're like, huh, and then I go to the other side to the record label and I say, here's something called the letter of direction, uh, which shows I've been authorized by this particular client to work for them. Here's your own contract. Here are your own royalty statements. Here's a list of the things I represent. Uh, We can't find the payments. If you've been making them, can you tell us where you've been making them? And if not, could you make them? And then the record labels are deers and headlights because we've just exposed this massive problem that they have that no one's dealt with before. So to answer your question, no, it is, it is not typically something that's on their radar. And even more sometimes frustrating is, and to George's point, the remedy. I don't have the stick unless they've registered their copyrights, because the stick are the financial damages. They can get up to 150000 for each infringement. So if you've got 10 tracks on an album and each track is its own work, that's 10 times 150000 Right. And if you're somebody like uh, Richard Pryor and you've got a wealth of works, that can get into real money. So who as a comedian, thinks, gosh, I better go register my works with the U.S. Copyright Office. You know, now what I found fascinating, and God bless him, George Carlin, he registered his works and he registered them as literary works in 1972 and in 1973. And you go and you literally go to the U.S. Copyright Office, again, this is me totally nerding out, and I search, and you get these little index cards that come back. They look like yeah, they're from I know. a
0: library. I, I tell people this, and they don't believe me. I'm like, you understand that our copyright system is operating on index cards. Like, I've been to the copyright. It's <laughs> insane.
1: Well, it's also them trying to take, you know, the analog and make it digital and scan shit in. But, you know, there's this little index. Uh, you card. know
0: what's been around for a long time? Optical character recognition. You know, it, it's it's unconscionable that they're letting these works deteriorate on, on 3 by 5 cards.
1: That's true. Uh, but anyway, you can see these registrations, you know, football versus baseball, seven dirty words. And there it is. And it's written and There's, They've got the little registration number and God bless him for doing it. Robin Williams as well. I, you know, some of these comedians have the foresight to do this. And so it allows me the opportunity to, um, to explain to them, educate them. Hey, you've done the registrations. Congratulations. And they're like, oh, we didn't even know we did that. I'm like, yeah. And here's the way copyright law works. And let me explain to you what a literary work is. And it's it's a whole education process and this is part of the reason why it takes time to end up working with a new client um if the first thing that the that the representation of the client knows is they're not getting yelled about this now no one you know so when they bring them something new understandably they take a pause they're like okay what is this thing who is this guy this sounds too good to be true And if I start doing this, is it going to create some unintended blowback that will harm my client or alternatively, uh, something that will bounce in the wrong direction. So it takes some time to explain it. And in the music industry, I'm known in the comedic world, I'm not, you know, so then it's like, who are you references and so forth. But it, you know, I'm now speaking with uh, Richard Pryor's widow, Jennifer Pryor, who is the executor of the Richard Pryor estate. And it's just, it, it's, uh, it's a privilege to, to speak with some of these people. I'm working with, with Dick, Dick Gregory, his, his family, his son Christian, you know, I'm like, I'm half a heartbeat away from cultural icons in history and it's, it's humbling, but it just takes time. Well, I
3: was just gonna say, so obviously for like an up and coming comedian who wants to prevent this from happening to them, your advice would be to register their work as literary works or like, what would be the way to be a more preventative approach? If you're like a young up and coming comedian, what would be the way to actually get on this at the very beginning of your career? What would be the advice you would give them?
1: Sign up with word collections and I'll just deal with it for you. But um, no, that, that's a glib response, honestly.
3: So you actually register the works for people then if they don't no, have them? We're
1: not eligible to do that because we don't own the copyrights, but we know how to do it. And we hold hands and, well, this is what you need to do We can explain it all. But honestly, if you're an up and coming comic, the first thing that you want to do is anything you can to get famous, to get more well-known, right? You're going to monetize your fame. And you don't want to do anything that's going to disrupt that. So as much as I rant and rave, I will also say the decision on what you want to do is up to you. It's not my place to tell you what rights you should enforce and what rights you shouldn't enforce. It's my job to tell you what your options are. As George always tells me, make educated decisions based on actual information. What I can do and what I strongly recommend is spend the five, 10, 20, 30, whatever minutes to get some information so you can start making educated decisions. That being said, yes, register your works, regardless of what decisions you're going to make. If you do not register your works, either the recording or the authorship, right? Those are the two different types of registrations or both, you lose options. You won't have the ability to make some of these decisions later in life. Uh, And then once you've done that, you you know I know it's a pain in the ass and it's the same thing for musicians. We don't wanna deal with this. We wanna write our jokes. We uh, wanna, that's not fair. We wanna write jokes. We wanna write our performances. We wanna make our cultural observations. We wanna write songs. We wanna create art and culture that can influence and inspire the world. I get it, I can't do that. But you should take a couple minutes to understand the business mechanics underneath it, because if this is how you're going to make your living, you need to know when someone's fucking you, when someone's not doing their job. You don't need to have the whole nine yards, but just have enough information in there so you can you can ensure things are happening. And then with that, make your decisions. So as an up-and-coming comic, yes. Uh, think about registering your works, and it sounds like a pain in the butt. If you figure it out, you're gonna be ahead of 99.9% of your other peers. And you'll have more options and leverage, particularly when you do become the next Dane Cook, Richard Pryor, Robin Williams. Leverage.
2: It sounds like this opens up a whole new revenue stream, not just for the comedians that are on stage, but for the writers, just like in music where you have songwriters that are not performers, they're never going to be on stage, but publishing pays their income. You've got all these comedy writers that are not stand-up comedians. And right now they probably make all their money in the writing rooms for sitcoms and the daily show and stuff like that. But I obviously have never done stand-up. I've got to imagine there's some degree of collaboration between comedians when they're writing their stand-up. It seems like it's more of a solo type journey than music is, but this opens up an opportunity for a, a unknown uh, comedian writing with a big shot, making some money there before he has his name. And that was the whole plot of, was it Funny People? The Adam Sandler, Seth Rogen movie, right?
1: I think so. So it's it's another great point. But w- what you're experiencing is the clash of copyright and technology. And this also speaks to why is this happening now? So you got this class of technology and copyright and everything that's a it's a bit over the top. But almost everything these days is consumed digitally, right? Uh, YouTube, TikTok, Twitch, Twitter. Uh, Spotify, Apple Music, you know, Amazon Music. Go through the list, and it never occurred, I don't think, to comedians that that routine they did at the cellar, and you know, in Boston or wherever the cellar is located, will end up on YouTube on a video, and that can actually monetize and make the money. And everything they have in their archives, all those recordings or audiovisual recordings that have never been brought to the light of the day, that's all. And I hate to use the word, that's all content. This is what we consume. And when you take this content and you put it out into the world for people to consume, it used to be live gigs and television shows. Now it's all this stuff online. And what's cool about that is whenever it's watched, uh, consumed online, it needs to be licensed and it generates royalty. So it's never occurred to comedians, I don't think, that there's this whole new income stream that has opened up because of the way the world changed with consumption of what they've created. That being said you know, let's go to a podcast. For some reasons, there's this weird misnomer that podcasts are somehow this weird thing that don't apply. No, a podcast, for the most part, when they're not streaming, is a freaking download. It's just a big download, but it's a download of an MP3 or an AAC file or something. It's a download. You can't take the Beatles album, a let it be, talk about it, Play the whole album, talk about it again, and then let people download it and go, it's a podcast. Well, you can, but you know what? It's also infringement because you can't do that without getting the license. You like, so, you know, podcast is this weird area. Uh, move into audiobooks, move into the writing that we are just discussing. So where the rights become available is contingent upon the use. If I'm a writer for The Daily Show, I'm most likely a work for hire for The Daily Show. And what I write is owned by them, not by me. So in that case, I couldn't go work for you as the writer because you don't control the guy. I could potentially go work for The Daily Show uh, as because they control the rights.
0: I love all of that. And and I've I've been saying forever that law lacks culture, right? Like, and you said kind of law lacks technology, but they're similar, right? But it does bring up the point, a lot of these famous comedians, you know, didn't write all their own jokes. Uh, Bob Hope, I mean, and, and, you know, if you go back, um, there are a lot of famous comedians that started writing jokes for others. Um, and and that's different. Those may or may not be works made for hire. Essentially, in the in the music business, that would be a cover, right? Like where where somebody wrote a song and then some bigger name performer covers it. So it it does open up a whole new revenue stream, and and I think a really healthy one too.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. But um, okay, so we're we're arcing towards the end here. I, I'd love to know about kind of the plans and the and the uh, what's going on with word collections. What people should know about it at various stages in their career. I think Carly's point is is a great one, and and um, and, and, and disclosure, uh, GHS is working with word collections and I'm an investor, but, um, I think we should make some, put something on the website about for anyone, this is how you register your copyright. And here's why I know that I know word collections isn't a, a, a B to C, uh, play as much as like tune was, but maybe you can articulate a little bit about the business proposition.
1: Yes. So, um, word collections began when I left my last company audio in 2020. And when I left, I had, what, a 12-month, a one-year period where I wasn't allowed to compete. I couldn't help songwriters and music publishers. So can said they would sue me if I did that. So I'm, right, and that's really one of the reasons why I started Word Collections, because it doesn't compete. Uh, that one year was up in July of this year, July 14th. So I'm now taking uh, what we do and expanding it into music as well. We now represent the Metallica song catalog called Creeping Death we also represent uh, we're about to represent the Songwriters Guild of America uh Thomas Dolby he had a hit in 1980 something uh she blinded me with science uh Horencia 360 which is a Hispanic Latino catalog so in addition to representing Robin Williams Richard Pryor George Carlin etc we also represent the underlying works for music for Metallica Songwriters Guild and so forth and the goal for word collections is real simple which is hey if Spotify, Apple, Amazon, YouTube, Deezer. If you want to use the, the works, it's totally fine, man. No problem. Just get a license and from us and pay us directly. That's it. And you know the philosophy of the company is real simple. If you want to use someone else's stuff, it's okay. Just get a license, pay a commensurate royalty. And here's the really radical part. The entity that earned the money should get paid the money. And it sounds like a crazy thing to say, but the entire music industry, and it bleeds into comedy as well, is predicated on not paying the people the money they earn, just having these big piles of black box money, that's what they call it, black box money, accrued but unpaid royalties. And then you go, gosh, we don't know whose money it is, so let's just take other people's money and split it up and hand it to ourselves, which is exactly what the National Music Publishing Association did when they pushed through the Music Modernization Act. For those of you that aren't aware, That law, which uh, bill which became a law, literally has a sentence in it that says, hey, we're going to overturn federal and state financial laws and rules to allow us to take your money, steal it, and hand it to Universal, Warner, and Sony, et cetera, based on their market share. Uh, So, as the market share of the major labels. and
0: And again... Open invitation from anyone at the MLC or others to come and, and provide counterpoint to that. And I know Jeff would come and talk about it. This is not meant to be a one-sided polemic. Anybody that's listening to this, and I know people at the MLC, et cetera, please, we'd love to hear from you.
1: And, and you know, there was not a reason for that sentence to be put into the law. Everything in that law could have worked without that sentence. That sentence was put in there for one reason and one reason only to take other people's money and liquidate it, redistribute it to the others that did not earn it. So um, the point with word collection is that this is ridiculous. Everything is tracked now. I don't need boots on the ground in Germany to tell me uh, how many times a song streamed on Spotify. I just need Spotify to give me the usage log, right? This isn't the old days where I needed someone to walk into a live venue or listen to AM FM radio in Germany or listen to German television to figure out what's happening. If I'm given the usage log from Spotify, I will know what happened in Germany. And because of it, there's an efficiency. So for the music services, it's easy. Hey man, you can get all the licenses you need from one spot for all the rights types that you need. We're gonna set the royalty rate and you just pay me back directly. And I'm gonna be able to, in that way, disintermediate, circumvent that whole pinball machine of craziness of the legacy industry, which is built on leaky pipes, business models of inefficiency that reward it when you don't pay people uh different business interests hidden cultural fees multiple administration fees so the end result is literally you end up with 35 to 45 percent more money and you get it in many cases a year more quickly and that that's the goal of word collections it's just simply to license and collect directly yeah and the technology to build all
0: that jeff you're great you're one of those rare people that tilt at windmills and actually hit them (laughs) you know i've seen you do it many times it's awesome let's do three things you don't seem to be able to grasp the concept of three things but uh so maybe maybe carly dan <laughs> or i will start and give you a little bit of time to uh, to come up to speed with the concept of three
1: chris
0: three things three things let's do it all right what's the question bring it that what, what's the question that carly
2: won't you show us a... all right yeah yeah go ahead dan or carly please uh my three things. No,
1: but what's the question? What are three things that I, I'm happy about? What, what What's the question?
2: It's purposefully vague. Uh, number one, an upcoming album that I'm more excited about than I've been for an album in a while. Uh, what's on Outside by Loose Buttons. They've got two singles out so far from this album. And it's, you'll like this, George. I, I think of them like a younger Hold Steady. They're from New York. Yeah, like, I love that. The, They've got some, uh, you know, the rock, they've got some great storytelling, and the guitar player is insane, but he's never the focal point. And I love mm. guitar players that can do something really creative and unique without taking all the attention to themselves. Like Tad
0: from Hold Study. I agree. That's, that's Eggs, a great I love you- uh
2: Number two is a book. Um came out a while ago. It was called Blood, Sweat, and Pixels by Bloomberg oh, writer Jason Schreier. Yeah. Uh, each chapter chronicles the development of a different video game and the struggles, both creative and business-wise, that they go through. And some are huge video games with thousands of people working on them. And there's even one that is a solo developer that did the music, the drawing, the programming all by himself. And it's it's really interesting. I think anyone that's working in a creative business um, or in software development can get something out of it. How? lot of these issues came up like crunch that were just not resolved and people working 16 hour days as well as people battling kind of the that intersection of art and commerce and so much of what is innovative and new that is happening in music marketing is directly coming from video games Um, and so I've this past year I've I've learned so much by looking at the way these communities are built and the way people interact with a 60 dollar video game it's there's a reason why they sell hundreds of millions of copies and music gets streamed you know a million times and earns five thousand dollars right there's there is such a deeper level of engagement um, and activity happening around it Uh, there's so much that we can take from that so it's really easy to read book Uh, jason's a great author And the last one is Loot, an NFT project by Don Hoffman, who's a co-founder of Vine. Uh, It's so ridiculously simple and it's so crazy where it's at now. So he created a smart contract where people can send a zero ETH transaction. So not actually sending him any money aside from gas fees that triggers the smart contract. And the person that sent that transaction would receive an NFT That is just a text list of eight different kind of like fantasy adventurer items, like a short sword or a uh, boots or something like that. And some items are rare and have fancy names and some are um, common and show up in a lot of the lists. But he set it up so there's only ever going to be 8,000 created. And I think he ended up releasing 7,777. There's no utility to these. They are just text lists. You cannot, he did not create any platform or game that you can use them. Um, but he, he did essentially make them open source, and that's part of a result of blockchain technology, period. So anyone can program a game or experience on top of these tools. And people have. People have started, right? There were no images for any of these items. So people started creating platforms where you could connect your wallet and based on what the items are, you would see a visual version of those. And because these are so rare. There's only seven thousand seven hundred released. This huge secondary market built up, uh, and so now the cheapest loot bag um, out of all those is trading for twenty three thousand dollars, and the market cap of all of them is one hundred eighty million. It's just insane. Um, but I, I love I love the ethos behind that of I'm going to build the tools and release them to everyone and of course as a creator and one of the great things about nfts is that the creator still retains a percentage of secondary market sales um i'm sure he's doing all right and he's making a few different projects but it's this is literally a community building something with the tools that one person provided and anyone else could create a um you know another set of tools that integrates and this is metaverse uh, baby yeah, it's just uh, I love seeing these use cases pop up where it's all these things that have been theoretical, and it's like, oh, you could do this on blockchain. Now people are doing it, and they're getting adopted very rapidly. Um, and so it's because they work, and people
0: don't even know there's a blockchain behind it. Any anything in any technology well, sufficient technology. Yeah,
2: on this one, people know there's a blockchain behind it because the the entry point is sending a transaction a to a you know to someone else's wallet. But the point is, it works, right? And so it's, I, I think things like this are going to become incredible. And it's, but video games have been doing this shit for forever. And so it's, it's just um, now we can do it without having to live solely in the Fortnite world or in Roblox. Right. <laughs> That's the interoperability. That's awesome. Yep. So, Carly Sima.
3: Well, I'm of course gonna recommend a podcast. I, my like one of my new favorite podcasts pardon me, is To Live and Die in LA. It's done by Neil Strauss, like the Rolling Stone and author of many um, rock and roll biographies. He got involved like very much in a real way with this case that happened in his community in Malibu. There's two seasons. It's a different missing person case both times, but it's like a true crime podcast that is essentially happening in in real time. Like these, the second season just wrapped and it's still an open investigation. So there's still like a a reward available. There's still a line. The season wrapped, but he even said like there will likely be updates um, as the case evolves. The first season, as they were investigating it, some crazy stuff happened and that's no longer an open investigation, but it's really, really well done. And I love this idea that you can kind of, follow a case really closely as it's happening, I really recommend it. It's, it's a part of the Tenderfoot media, so Lindsay Payne's network, um, and they do true crime really well. And then this is very fitting to our conversation. My second one, my also my new favorite show, probably one of my new favorite comedians. I think you should leave with Tim Robinson. I truly think is like sketch comedy at its finest. It is hilarious. If you haven't watched it, it's like laugh out loud, almost from beginning to end it is it's just perfection but like I'm just smiling thinking about it I was I thought of it while we were talking about it and was like smiling thinking of some of the jokes it's he is so funny I don't know why he's not one of the biggest comedians that like today but I think maybe he's on his way he's like there's quite a bit. of. I'm not the only one that obviously feels this way, but you can watch the two seasons on Netflix. He also did a show called Detroiters, which is equally as hilarious. And yeah, it's like a very fitting um, thing for today's conversation. And then my third thing is this new series on Medium called Internet Nostalgia. It's mostly written by a journalist and author, Will Leitch. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. And it looks back at the stories that have captured the imagination of and, and attention of the internet. But those moments are so fleeting. And so he goes back and he like revisits internet hoaxes or viral videos, infamous tweets that like ruined careers. Yeah. like yeah i don't want to there's a, there's a lot of them and they come out every friday and it's kind of like a short piece but it's also one of those things where you're like how did i even forget about that like how that was such a big thing and i think it's also this really cool kind of um um what's it called
0: pandora's box
3: no like a time capsule of these like very specific moments that happened in internet history that also like he you will mention when there was like pop culture crossovers where like something that happened on the internet either became a documentary or like it was a skit in like a family guy episode or whatever it may be and then it always finishes with the what we've learned sometimes it's literally nothing we're still kind of revisiting and remaking old mistakes or we're fascinated by the same things but it's a really cool Weekly series on Medium that I I do highly recommend. It's a fun little piece of yeah internet memory boxes. I'll call it now <laughs> internet nostalgia. <laughs> I recommend it.
0: Jeff, <laughs> you want
1: me to go or you want to go? I, I'm gonna look like a damn fool. You know, you guys are coming up with some great things. Uh, uh. Well, all right. So there's a, a program on Apple TV Plus called Mythic Quest, which I am just so. Enamored with um, it, it start. I th- so there's another program called Shit's Creek, which you know, some people have seen. And season one of Shit's Creek starts. It's very sort of tongue in cheek, goofy, you know. And as you get into season two, it flushes it out. It gets into character development. It gets into a more uh, interesting show. I was expecting Mythic Quest to be, you know, goofy, wacky. And it is a little bit, but there is a depth and a heart and a sincerity to it. And there's also the script, the screenwriting, uh, the lead, um, Rob McElhaney, I think that's how you say his name, who was in... um, uh, McElhaney. Yeah, thank you. Sonny. Yeah, it's it's always Sonny. He plays uh, one of the leads with Pompey, and it's just, the, the acting is superb, but there is such a truism to it. They... Clearly they got interrupted by COVID in season one and the way they handled that. And the second, the penultimate, the second to last episode of season one, it, it, it literally made me cry. When uh, Anyway. So, and now that I'm in season two, they just did a backstory on, on one of the characters. I don't know if you guys have seen it and they went through this. Wasn't whole- that
0: great. It was
1: crazy. Like, how did
0: you come up with that? That was and, as good as like Mad Men or something like always, that it, was, it's my son, me and my son's favorite show to watch together. And yeah, that one about what's his name, the you know the, the the writer guy, his backstory was incredible. Well, then not
1: only the backstory, but then when, anyway. So I don't want to belabor it too much, but I can't recommend it enough. And uh, you know, so there's that. The the sort of the second cool thing, honestly, is um, I you know I I've taken to biking because I can't jog anymore because I'm old, and my feet got screwed up, and I can't swim because you know we're all gonna die from COVID. So I, I bike. <laughs> and, and when I bike, uh, I do the particularly long bike rides and I'll do like three or four hours. And I put together playlists of music. And in doing so, it has forced me to have to find more music because I can't listen to, you know, bare hands, you know, the same 50,000 times and so i'm finding music now and uh you know tv on the radio is a an artist for me which is a recent discovery and i'm like where has this been all my life and um <laughs> well, you know,
0: they were like in your backyard i know I'm it, they
1: weren't signed to tune core you know it's just one of those things where i'm like holy shit! and i'll tell you man i've also gotten into super chunk and Jawbox in a way i never have before so um, I don't know which thing it is. that's the bike rides, but TV and the radio in particular have really, really um, come to roost with me. And the last thing I wish I had something as intelligent or interesting or cultural culturally changing as some of the things both of you've already talked about, but uh, the pandemic in particular has forced me to learn how to cook. And I now cook and then my daughter when we were starting was coming in because she's now adopting and she made uh, a meal last night on her own she you know she's 11 but she like minced the onion and garlic and the whole nine yards anyway i have learned how to make a wicked batch of ramen uh i can make ramen and and i'm very proud of myself but you know i make all of our meals now and um the amount of money it saves is ridiculous but it's really learning about cooking and the chemistry behind cooking is fascinating uh, the molecular breakdown you know the fact if you mince garlic you want to let it sit for 15 to 20 minutes before you end up using it because of the way it, it frees up just so just learning about the the molecular the chemistry behind cooking there's a lot of books around this now combined with understanding how to do it is it's been really interesting and uh and that's sort of my my third thing
0: is it harold mcgee or howard mcgee do you know that but he was one early on in the day i can't remember if it's harold or howard mcgee who wrote a book about the kind of science, yeah, on food and cooking, Harold, you should get it immediately because he he approaches cooking very much as from the kind of science experiment.
1: And it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, I went actually to a lecture some time ago in Berkeley where I was discussing, you know, I wanted to understand why microwaves make all food taste like crap. And he was able to explain that. So the director was able to explain it. Uh, There's also another one, which is, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, Salt, fat, and sugar, something like that. Acid, salt, fat, fat. salt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. she's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which actually is turned into like its own There's a Netflix
0: series with her too, Yeah, which is great.
1: All right, so anyway, those are my three things. I have one question. Yes,
3: please. What is your, do you have like a ramen tip or something that you've learned? I've never, ramen is something that I'm not that great at making. I would love if you have like some you've had some breakthrough in the ramen cooking.
1: Yeah. So the breakthrough came from, uh, I subscribed to HelloFresh, one of these meal kits, right? And they deliver the, the stuff. And one of the meals they had was a, a ramen recipe. And so that came and I just riff off of that. And as you can imagine, it's about the broth and the noodles. So I went on Amazon and I found like these, you know, high quality ramen noodles and I buy them. And then the broth, it's just, oh, you need to have like a chicken or a beef or a, a mushroom or some other stock. That you're putting in and you can start to add flavors to it. Um, and then you you know get some carrots and onion your vegetables and you stir-fry those up. But that's that was really it. It's it's much simpler than I thought. It's all about the broth. So I'm I'm taking I'm taking these. I started with the concentrate uh, packets, you know, that I add a cup of water to. And then now what I'm doing is I have an Instapot and I realized I could take a like a five-pound chicken put it in the Pot, I'll fill it with, <laughs> it's a cooking show. I'll fill it with two cups of water or I'll fill it with two cups of chicken broth and I'll add in a lot of uh, minced onion and garlic and, and rosemary and some other stuff. And then you, for every pound of chicken as you set it for six minutes. So then I pull the whole chicken out and I got the whole chicken which we then peeled down into meat and put it in the fridge. But then I got a whole uh, Instapot full of broth. And then I've learned from that, I can make risotto. Then you make rice in that. Oh man, it's good. But you can also use that as sort of the foundation for your ramen ramen as well. So those are some of the things that I figured out.
0: All right, so to close it off, uh, my first is John Laurie's new book, History of Bones. I've loved that guy forever. Lounge Lizard Days, Fishing with John, his visual art. This is an amazing book. Like you could not, there's no way you could make the shit up. Like his life has just been so fascinating and he's just he's kind of um in his way and just connected with lots of people really beautiful writer one of my favorite quotes is there's no such thing as talent there's only cleaning the mirror which is this beautiful kind of Buddhisty type thing but so it's really wonderful even if you don't know his art music or whatever is a great writer um the second um i don't know why i was listening to remain in light um the the talking heads record the other day other night and um the the it's just a brilliant record all around. Sounds like it was made 200 years from now, not whatever, 40 years ago. And th- in particular, the bass playing from Tina Weymouth. I think she is wildly, wildly underrated as a bass player. And it's not like she hasn't gotten her due, but just go back and listen to it. It's out of control. Um, particularly the bass line on Born Under Punches It's it's just avant-garde art It's like what in the fuck is going on But it's it, but hugely listenable at the same time And I had the good fortune to work with her And her, her husband Chris France the drummer And they're just the nicest people in the world They deserve every, every bit of the, the legacy they have The last is is super nerdy and like I've always been intimidated by the films of Kurosawa. One because they're in Japanese and two they just seem really geeky and just like you got to be a real like cineast or however you say that word. But I just I put one on. I put Seven Samurai on the other night and um, I'm not sure I really get it or understand it so much. I just know it's fucking beautiful like just like the the visuals the imagery and obviously it's like one of those landmark movies like citizen kane or whatever but it, it's it's just i would just implore anyone just like just put it on and just watch it like just the visuals are just so extraordinary that I, that i was really really overwhelmed emotionally watching it so those are my th-
1: by the way i feel like if you'll allow me this because i feel i've done an injustice which is um i learned about dick gregory Cause you're talking about the lounge lizards, uh, you know, and Dick Gregory, who he is and what he did. If there was ever a Superman, it was Dick Gregory. Uh, and, and I, I, I just, it was, you know, this is like TV on the radio, but it was like another one of these cultural finds. I'm like, how the fuck did I not know this? You know, this guy's born in 1932, comes up through the depression, does up comedy in the South, where basically if he says the wrong thing, they're going to fucking lynch him. Right. And he ends up getting a break at the Playboy Club in Chicago to a room of, of white southern farmers, I think. And um, ultimately, overnight becomes a sensation, ends up in the Dick Cavett show, goes you know, making $5,000 a week from $200 a month or something. And he decides he's going to use his celebrity to go down and march for civil rights with Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King. Medgar Evers gets assassinated, for God's sakes. Dick Gregory gets shot Uh, in the leg. And he's marching for civil rights. He's anti-Vietnam. He he fucking jogs from New York to California. He jogs it to raise awareness for some of his causes. And he goes on an all-juice fasting diet while he's doing it because he believes the African-American community in particular doesn't eat properly. And they're being uh, force-fed shit, which is making them worse, comes up with a diet called the Bahamian diet, which is this powder mix that you as a supplement, which gets bought by beach nut for $30 million has, I think 12 children. Uh, it's just, there's a documentary on, I'm on Showtime now. Uh, I was like, who, who, who the, is this guy? Um, anyway. So that's what I left out in it. And um, I really wanted to bring him up. So I'll shut up now.
3: I wonder, cause I actually have it saved on Crave, which is like the Canadian hulu kind of um option and there i have it on my list right now the one and only dick gregory but i haven't watched it yet i wonder if it's the same documentary that you're talking about i definitely will watch that now yeah his
1: son invited me to the premiere here in new york and we went outside because of covid and i got to watch and he, it. it's was unbelievable what this man went through you know anytime i think i have balls or i'm brave i just compare myself to someone like a richard pryor or a a Moms Mabley, or Dick Gregory, and I realized, I don't know shit. These people were going to get killed, lynched, murdered, you know, simply because they were being persecuted against, there was prejudice, and they stood up, and they were able to turn it into a comedic routine where their whole, their life would have been, I mean, what they went through compared to me, huh.
0: Yeah, that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Yeah, thank you so much.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: All
0: right, take care.
1: Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye,
2: guys. Talk soon, everyone. Bye.
3: The Entrepreneurship and Art Podcast is a GH strategic production hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, Dan Cervantes, and George Howard. For more information and show notes, visit our website at entrepreneurshipandart.com.